0: From Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was, staying for, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them.
1: One of my first pastors would say, coming to church without a Bible is like leaving your house without your pants on.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm going to talk about a lot about Scripture today. I'm going, going to touch on a lot of Scripture. and So it's good to have your own Bible with you, in front of you, and take notes if you want. But So you know where these Scriptures are, where you can refer back to them. I know we provide them on the screen, and that's that's a blessing. But you need to have your sword with you so you know where things are so coming to church without the bible is like leaving your house without a pants on so this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last sunday if jesus is the only way to the father how do we tell our city well this morning we're going to figure that out so Imagine this morning you're a missionary arriving in the capital city of a country uh, you visit, but you've never been, and um, using this analogy I want to help us start to build uh, some sort of a vision, some sort of a strategy. And so here we see Paul comes into a capital city, comes into a country that he's never been in before. And imagine you're that missionary and your itinerary has suddenly been changed. And now you find yourself alone in a place filled with people whose education and whose intelligence far surpass your own. The city is filled with people discussing art, discussing philosophy, a city full of people describing the latest fads. And you are the first Christian to ever visit this city. There's no churches. There's no Christian schools. There's no Christian radio. And as you walk down the streets, you become nauseated by the sheer number of statues to pagan gods. And you begin to weep because no one has ever heard of Jesus. What will you do? How will you find an opening for the gospel. Where will you begin? How will you find someone to talk to? And who will ever listen to your message? This is precisely the situation the Apostle Paul faced when he arrived in Athens. Many years ago, I heard a preacher say these words. He said, to turn the world upside down, the word of God must first turn us inside out. Beloved, if we're going to turn Akron upside down, or should I say Akron, if we're going to turn Akron upside down, the word of God must turn us inside out first. And so our main point this morning is this. If we're going to reach believers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barricades. We must build bridges and not barricades. So let's start by examining the background of this text. So the Apostle Paul has escaped Berea because of persecution. So he makes the 200-mile journey to Athens where he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. And so to pass the time, he went sightseeing. That's what you do, isn't it? You get in an Uber, go down to the main street, walk the main street, come back again, take photos, put them on Facebook. But instead of being impressed with what he saw, what does it say in verse 16? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now that phrase, full of idols, means they were covered with or under idols. So we hear the expression, I'm under authority. Yeah? They were under idols. That's what the original Greek reference is. The, the, the phrase full of idols means they were covered or under idols. One ancient writer estimated that there was 30,000 gods in the city, which made it easier to bump into an idol than a living human being. Athens was next to Mount Olympus where the Greek gods Zeus and Aphrodite were supposed to dwell. In addition to the Parthenon, a temple dedicated to the goddess of Athena, uh, was built on the highest hill overlooking the city. So the Greek word for provoked, the English word we use provoke, but the Greek word is where we get our English word seizure. So it was an idea of being so morally shocked that Paul's insides were convulsing. It's a combination of anger and sadness. Paul was so deeply distressed about the depth of their depravity. Now, Jesus had a similar reaction, the same Greek word is used, when he saw the hardness of the people of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19 verse 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city and what did he do? He wept over it. And it's how Lot felt when when Peter repeats about uh, repeats about the Old Testament um, patriarch of Lot in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. He says when he saw when, when he was when he was. It said he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Same word. Raven, uh, sorry, Leonard Ravenhill once wrote these words. He said, the world has lost its power to blush over its vice and the church has lost her power to weep over it. That's powerful, isn't it? The world has lost its power to blush over its vice and we, the church, have lost our power to weep over it. Instead we le- instead of leaving the city or complaining to the city officials, verse 17 tells us that Paul first preached in the synagogue and then built bridges to those in the marketplaces daily. So great men like Socrates and, and, and Plato and Aristotle were from Athens. Just to give you a picture of what... Paul was dealing with and we see in verse 18 two groups of philosophers wanting to debate with him the Epicureans who were atheists they denied God's existence and they denied the afterlife they were content to just live for today and their chief goal was to pursue pleasure and their deepest desire was the evasion of pain their motto was eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die so how many Epicureans do you know Pretty much describes our 21st century culture, doesn't it? The Stoics were pantheists who, were, who believed that God was everything and everything was God. That's what a pantheist believes. So Stoics strive to live in harmony with nature, focused on self-control and self-sufficiency. Their attitude towards life was one of ultimate resignation. Their motto was grin and bear it. We use that in our Western culture. That was actually their motto. We, that's, that's translated into 21st century language now. So apathy was regarded as the highest virtue of life. So again, how many know Stoics? We live in a culture that is just gone through the, going through the motions. Isn't we? Apathy is rife. And so some of these proud philosophers uh, treated Paul with utter disdain. Verse 17, what does they say? What does this babbler wish to say? Now the Greek word for babbler literally means seed picker. They saw him as one of the little birds in the marketplace, flitting around picking at seeds where here and there and, and, and like, like the sparrows you know on the sidewalk. In their mind, Paul was a loathsome chatterer who, who collected fragments of truth. But others were interested in w- and wanting to know what he, uh, more about what he was saying, this, this new teaching. So they brought him to the Areopagus, the highest court in Athens. Their theology had room for additional gods. Now, I've met and I've discussed Jesus with many religious people. And at first, they are very accommodating and they're prepared to add Jesus uh, to their list of religious ideologies. But when you tell them, that it doesn't work that way because Jesus is the only way to heaven. They quickly change the subject, don't they? So Athens was filled with idols, filled with ideas. Things have not changed much in the 21st century, have they? John Calvin nailed it when he said these words. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from the mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. In essence, Athenians were into fads. A fad is something people are interested in for a short period of time, only to have something new catch their attention. Wow, that sound, what does that sound like? That sounds like us, doesn't it? Hula hoops, who was into hula hoops? Pet rocks, click clacks, remember click clacks? You break your wrist, yeah. Cabbage Patch Kids, Beanie Babies, Tamagotchi Pets. For the Athenians, if something was trending on Twitter or popular on TikTok or a viral video on YouTube or the most watched show on Netflix, they were all over that. What does this sound like? Sadly, the Greeks had 800 years of Greek mythology, 500 years of Greek philosophy, and they were still searching for something novel to bring satisfaction to their souls. Eric Hoffer said, the fear of becoming a has-been keeps people from becoming anything. (laughs) The fear of becoming a has-been keeps people from becoming anything. And as we walk through our text this morning, I want us to see Paul's approach as a model for us as we live on mission with the intellectual, the unbelieving, the pleasure-seeking, the self-sufficient and apathetic people in our own lives, in our city. Paul's words are clear, they're concise and very much to the point. If we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges and not barricades. While the Epicureans were all about enduring life and the Stoics focused on enduring life, Let's learn this morning how Paul pointed them to eternal life. I want to look at six ways this morning how we can build gospel bridges to unbelievers. Number one, compliment what you can. Call out someone in greatness. Yeah, compliment where you can. Let's see verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, don't miss this. Paul was repulsed by all their idols. He was repulsed by their ideas. But he was respectful. What he he saw nauseated him. But he didn't get nasty with people. What a great approach, eh? He didn't denounce them. He didn't attack their idols. In fact, he paid them a compliment. He basically said, as I've been walking around your city, I've noticed one thing about you, that you're very religious people. He didn't begin by saying, hey, you devils. I've come to expose your sin, your your dirty, wretched, hellbound, idol worshipping, your Hellenistic, you Hellenistic pagan so-and-sos. He didn't come and say that. So the big question is, do you look for ways to compliment those who are not yet Christians? Or are you secretly angry with them because of their behaviour? Now, God bless my wife Giselle. I have learnt more practical theology from her than I learned in Bible college. <laughs> she, she she pulled me up many years ago um, for being a jerk and said, "Why why do you get so angry and uptight when non Christians act like non Christians? You and I should, uh, you know, never be surprised, brothers and sisters, that." non-Christians act like non-Christians we should never be surprised by that remember to be kind not cold and abrasive don't be brother or sister sandpaper okay you've met brother sandpaper haven't you (laughs) believers will pick up on your attitudes so we need to be careful let's make sure we're building bridges and not burning them this morning here's the big idea If you are not filled with indignation, you will not have courage to do what Paul did. And if you're only filled with indignation, you won't have the gentleness that you need. So let's take this to a deeper level. With all the cultural chaos, with all the immoral depravity and the social or the societal sins that are swirling all around us, it's difficult to respond redemptively this morning, isn't it? Now... As I see it, we have four choices. Number one, we can isolate. At times in history, the church um, did that. The the world was so wicked, some believers retreated into uh, 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 monastic uh, uh, buildings and monastic areas and into monasteries. And and others went uh, to even further extremes and detached themselves from the world and the corruption of culture. The second thing we can do is we can insulate. It's not easy to, to isolate, so others chose to insulate themselves um, from the problems and the pain of those who, are not yet, who, don't know, who don't yet know Christ. Those people spend most of their time with other Christians and when they do have conversations about lost people, the words are often very judgmental. So we can isolate, we can insulate, we can um, um, we can copy, we can we can just sort of imitate, can't we? We can imitate. I'm afraid this is where most believers end up. Instead of fighting the world, uh, most believers uh, uh, want to be want to just fit in, just want to fit in, just imitate. And we end up uh, caving into the culture. Fourth, infiltrate. This is the heart of Jesus this morning. As light, we are to expose darkness and point people to the light of the world. As salt, uh, we're to function as preservative, as as to as a preventive in the society, and to make people as salt thirsty for Jesus. So we must stop thinking of us versus them. And we start to move towards us for them. Someone should say amen to that. Not us versus them, but us for them. The problem is not binary this morning. Jesus offers us a third way. Us for them. We must infiltrate. So if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barricades this morning. Number two, connect to a need. Verse 23 says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. They created an altar to an unknown God because they didn't want to accidentally miss one. This showed Paul that they had a deep desire to please God, even if they don't know or didn't know who he was. In effect, he said, you admit you don't know this God, so let me tell you about him. The God they thought was hidden was was the God Paul uh, openly proclaimed to them. So Paul hung out where people lived and where people worked. This is the key principle this morning. You've got to get to know people. If you want to build gospel bridges to these people, you've got to get where the people are. And as Paul walked around, he looked for connecting points. He looked for bridges from their world to the gospel. What did he do? He observed. You've got to get to know people. So the big question is this morning, are you spending enough time with your neighbours? Are you spending enough time with your classmates or your co-workers to find out these connecting points? Do you know where their interests are? Do you know what they are connected to and what they are concerned about? Do you know what makes them happy and what makes them sad? Have you discovered any idols in their hearts? Have you observed? So if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges and not barricades. Number three, clearly present God. Notice how, Paul, how, how boldly Paul was in verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This probably made them all sit on the edge of their stone seats. Uh, the phrase worship as unknown literally means in the Greek, in ignorance. It's as if he was saying, you admit there is a God you don't know. I happen to know that God and I will now proclaim him to you. So in verses 24 to 27, Paul teaches a Theology 101 class. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and and, and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So in the midst of uh, multiple gods, Paul quickly contrasts the true God with the countless idols when he says, the God, there is only one God. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Paul begins with what is called theology proper in verses 24 to 25. God is the creator of everything, whom made the world and everything in it. God is Lord of all, being Lord of all heaven. God is supreme and sovereign. God cannot be contained in a building, does not live in the temples made by man. Now Solomon knew this to be true. According to King 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in, and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. This would have been a jolt to these guys. This would have been a jolt to them in the shadow of the Parthenon God does not need anything from anyone, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. God sustains his creation since he himself gives to all mankind the breath and everything. In verses 26 to 27, Paul transitions to theological anthropology. Now that's just a $50 word that means what God thinks about you and me, okay? but we've got to use $50 words to understand things. (laughs) So the entire human race can be traced to Adam. Every nation of mankind comes from one man. So in that sense, there is only how many races? One race, which is what? The human race. I don't care what colour your skin is, we're just one race. And he made us from one man, one man, every nation, every person, one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So Paul is confronting the racism of the Greeks. He's confronting our racism too. But he's confronting the racism of the Greeks who called everyone who did not speak Greek a barbarian. So no national race is superior because we all came from one ancestor. God determines the time and the place for every individual and every nation. He having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, this Paul says. But God put within us a desire to know him. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, "God has put eternity into the man's heart." So, God exists He's the creator, he's the supreme and sovereign, he is involved, he sustains, and he is drawing you to himself. In other words, you didn't make God, he made you. He doesn't need you, you need him. He looks for you, even when you're not looking for him. Then Paul circles back to make a cultural connection when he quotes their two of their pagan prophets. He actually quotes two of their pagan prophets before again establishing the uniqueness of God. In verse 28 he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So in our culture it would be like you and I using a line from a popular movie or using a line from a popular, uh, the lyrics of a popular song. Paul then bridges the biblical truth. He's building a bridge here. He's using pagan uh, words and phrases and he builds a bridge, a biblical bridge of truth back to them in verse 29. It says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone as an, an, imagine, an image sorry, formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, as Paul is saying this, his listeners were no doubt gazing at the gods and the costly statues displayed in in, in the Acropolis. So, number four, call for repentance. Paul compliments, Paul connects and clearly presents God. Then he calls for repentance in verse 30, the time of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So brothers and sisters, we must reclaim this important doctrine because it's a command. Listen to what was said about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. For the time, for that time Jesus began to preach saying, what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts 3:19 says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Call for repentance. It's important. Number five, clarifying who Christ is. It's not enough just to to, to compliment. It's not enough just to, to connect, although those are very, very important things to do. We must clearly present God and the call for repentance. And so why do we need to do that? Because there is so much confusion about Christ in the world today. We are his followers and so we must clarify who Christ is. Look at verse 31, it says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And for this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's two main headings here. Everyone will face the judgment of Jesus and the day of judgment is fixed and it is inescapable. John 5.22 says, the Father, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die, how many times? Once. Once. There's no reincarnation, is there, Brother John? No. Once, and after that comes judgment. Interestingly, this is the order of biblical revelation. It begins with creation and it ends with judgment. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The resurrection is proof. Jesus is God. He is alive and has conquered depravity and he's conquered death and he has conquered the devil himself. So Paul hits on sin, he hits on righteousness and judgment because according to John 16, 8, that's how the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Paul was not afraid to speak of the inescapable day of judgment. He did not shrink from speaking the truth about the resurrection of Jesus, even though he knew many of his listeners would not want to hear it. Paul celebrated the supremacy of Christ and didn't shy away from speaking about sin. So let me spell it out for you this morning so you don't miss this. You will either face Jesus as judge or you will face Jesus as justifier you will either be condemned because of your sin or you will be celebrated because the saviour has forgiven your sins you will either go to heaven because Jesus has taken your curse or you will be cursed forever and spend eternity without God beloved listen to me this morning if God gives you the opportunity Speak boldly for Christ. Speak bold. Don't be ashamed. Tell people how Jesus died in their place and how they can be forgiven of all their sins that they have committed. Call them to repentance in the light of the resurrection. That's important because judgment is coming. If we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, beloved, we must build bridges and not barricades. There's one final element in Paul's connecting strategy. It's the sixth element. Commit the results to God. I see three responses which are very, very common today. But first, let me remind you that you and I are not responsible for how people respond. Okay? Some will reject. Verse 32 says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Secondly, others were reluctant a second response is found um, in, in, in the last part of verse 32. It says, we will hear you again about this. So their appetites were wetted, and they told Paul that they wanted to talk some more. Unfortunately, this response often mounts to procrastination, doesn't it? it? It amounts just to procrastination. And the individuals keep putting off a decision to repent and receive Christ. One man said these great words. He says... Um, the most dangerous of all days is when a person discovers how easy it is to talk about tomorrow. Manana isn't that right? Yeah. It's so easy. The most dangerous of all days is when a person discovers how easy it is to talk about tomorrow. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse two. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, Now is the day of salvation. However, lastly, a few received. Verse 34 says, Some men joined him and believed, a woman named Demarius and others with him. It's often just a few who will be convinced. Many will reject. Some will be reluctant. A handful will receive. It's one by one. That's what we're here for. We're here for the ones and the twos. The gospel wasn't well received in Athens, but that wasn't Paul's fault. Regardless of how someone responds, it's our response to do what we can to connect them with Jesus this morning. Our job is simply to sow the gospel seed. So let's summarise what we've talked about in an effort to personalise these points. So I'd like you to think of that one person you know that's not saved. Put their face on the screen of your mind right now. Compliment where you can. Connect to the need. Clearly present God. Call for repentance. Clarify who Christ is. Commit the result to God. Beloved, if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barricades. It's not us versus them it's us for them we must look for opportunities to connect with non-christians so brothers and sisters we are living in a foreign land this world is not our home we are aliens and strangers but we are called to live on mission god has given you neighbors to love and to witness to you live where you live by the design of God. He has put you in the place where you are, on purpose and for his purpose. And so we must build bridges, not barricades. Because without a vision, people perish, don't they? And if we don't, as a church, build bridges and not barricades, we will just age out. We will. We'll just age out. And this will become a funeral home once again. Amen? Amen? Amen. We don't want to age out, do we? No. No. Build bridges. Amen? Amen. 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 Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that my sins were judged at the cross and that there is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ. But I realize that there are, are many that remain dead in their sins. And I pray that you will use me to tell those that your place in my, that, that use that would use me to tell those that you place in my path those people that are my neighbors, those people that are my co-workers, that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried and that he rose again so that all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. And all people said, Amen. Amen.